Good morning. Good morning, Judge Griffith, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. I'd like to start with the Appointments Clause today, both because it's jurisdictional and because I think it's actually the most straightforward way of resolving this case. And by that I mean, in Lucia, the Appointments Clause was violated because SEC employees performed significant governmental duties without holding an office established by law. And here, Susan Crawford, a Defense Department employee, performed... Well, she's more than that, right? She's more than that. She's a senior judge for the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. She's a constitutional officer. She's not, actually. And I would draw this Court's attention to the distinctions between Section 942, 10 U.S.C. Section 942, and this Court's own senior judge provision, 28 U.S.C. 371. And I think there are a couple just key distinctions. The first one is the statute itself, Section 942E, I believe, sub 4, says she's only an officer of the United States when called upon to serve on a particular case by the chief judge of the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. So Congress has already determined she is not an officer of the United States absent that preconception. Well, if we disagreed with you on that, if we read the statute differently, where are you with your Appointments Clause argument then? With respect to which, actually? That provision says she's not... If we disagreed, if I disagreed with you, I thought she is a constitutional officer as a senior judge on the CAA. Where are you then on the Appointments Clause issue? Then we have a really profound germaneness problem. In Shoemaker, the Supreme Court sets out the original sort of test for germaneness. The Supreme Court picks up on that in Weiss, which in the military context is pretty open-ended because military officers are given a broad ambit to do basically anything they're told to do. A senior judge... Let me just first step to say a judge on the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces is only given statutory authority to preside on the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, and a senior judge is even a narrower category of individual. Their duties are even more narrowly confined to only performing judicial duties on cases where they're called to serve by the chief judge of the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. And so simply as a statutory matter, nothing in Section 942, the statute the government relies upon to create this office, if you assume it's an office, nothing in that in any way, shape, or form makes the duties of a convening authority of a military commission or any other military tribunal germane to those basic duties and responsibilities she's given under the statute. Congress certainly could have made her... What I understand the government's argument to be is that she's basically a principal officer at large for the remainder of her life, that the government would not have an objection to her or the government... No one could reasonably object to her being designated the Secretary of Agriculture or the Attorney General or the Deputy Attorney General or a judge on this court if you take the government's argument seriously. But that's just not what Congress said in the statute. And in the statute, Congress said... First of all, Congress said you're only an officer when called upon to serve on the court. But even bracketing that broader question aside, taking the most extreme form of the government's statutory argument on its face, Congress also said these are the only things you're allowed to do as an officer. And if you go beyond that remit, it's simply not up to the Secretary of Defense to designate her to be the military commission convening authority because that's simply not an authority that Congress believed she ever would have. Now, if I could turn actually to what I think is the narrowest way of resolving this case, and that would be to vacate on statutory grounds. The CMCR agreed with us that our interpretation of Section 948H, under which officer is given its statutorily defined meaning and official is given its technical but Black's Law Dictionary defined meaning of an office holder, that that's a plausible reading of the statute. And accepting that my friend's interpretation of the statute is also plausible, ours is the only one that doesn't raise any constitutional problems at all, whereas theirs drives this court into what I think can only be described as a thicket of constitutional questions, including this germaneness question that we just spoke about. And how this court resolves any of those, if this court resolves those constitutional questions in my friend's favor, it's going to be significantly weakening the guardrails around the administrative state in ways that I doubt this court is going to be in a position to predict when deciding this case. And so I think just as a statutory matter, just as a Clark v. Martinez constitutional avoidance, if we put forward a plausible argument and they put forward a plausible argument, 
Ours has to prevail because ours is the only one that doesn't drive this court into a constitutional morass under the Appointments Clause. But I would also say, if I can defend our... So you're defending your position because we would have to decide fewer constitutional questions under your view? You'd have to decide no constitutional questions under our view. Because we also think, and if I can, I think our reading of the statute is just better. It preserves a core distinction between military and civilian officials, which is extremely salient in Title X, which is to be expected. It's consistent with the history of military tribunals where, again, prior to Crawford, there has never been a freestanding convening authority to preside over any kind of military tribunal. If you go back to the Second World War, it's General Eisenhower, it's General MacArthur, it's General Steyer in the Yamashita case. And this issue, not under Appointments Clause terms, but actually gets discussed a little bit in the Yamashita case. If you look to about page 11, where there's a discussion about what is convening authority in a military commission context, and it's a duty, it's a responsibility. I would also say that our reading has been applied throughout, basically since 2006, a majority of the time, our reading of the statute has been applied. The Secretary of Defense designated the Deputy Secretary of Defense initially, designated the General Counsel of the Navy, designated other retired military officers, all of these people, at least certainly as a statutory matter, and we would say probably as a constitutional matter as well, are individuals being designated in authority that the Secretary of Defense is given the ability to delegate. I would also just say one other thing about our reading, is I also think our reading is the only one that actually makes sense of the statute. Congress certainly could have, as it did, for example, with CMCR judges, or the Chief Prosecutor, or the Chief Defense Counsel, create a distinct separate office of the convening authority, capital C, capital A, convening authority. It didn't do that. It could have given the Secretary of Defense a general housekeeping statute, the way the Secretary of Transportation did in Edmond, or the way the SEC does under the Securities and Exchange Act. It didn't do that. The Secretary does not have the general appointing power that many other department heads are given by statute. Isn't it easier for us just to read the statute to say that it doesn't include mere employees? That we have to read the Appointments Clause into this, and then the question becomes whether Crawford was a constitutional officer or not. Well, sure. Accepting your initial proposition that her being a senior judge on the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces makes her a principal officer in perpetuity. And I would like to address some of the other problems with that, if I can. But assuming that, then perhaps yes. I'm just trying to get your point. You're trying to make it easy for us, and we appreciate that. I do. We appreciate that. And I'm just wondering if there's another way to make it easier. We do that all the time in constitutional avoidance. Read statutes in a certain way to avoid the constitutional issue. And I just wonder why we can't read this statute just to say, you know, the convening authority cannot be a mere employee. Granted, you're arguing on that. But that's not what we have here. We don't have a mere employee. So that is our reading of the statute. And so if that's the statutory interpretation. So that's the ease you're talking about? It is. Simply construe it to not include employees, to not be this implied office creation statute. Congress put those words in the statute for a reason. Then the question becomes whether we agree or not with your characterization of Judge Crawford. That's right. And if I can point to a few other things which I think undermine that conclusion. So, again, I think you have a germaneness problem. And there are all sorts of people who have various titles of senior status and are available to serve in government in various ways. And so embracing this idea that anyone who is given any kind of quasi title in retirement is perpetual. That's not here. I mean, you've got somebody who's a senior judge on the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. That sounds like if you're looking for a pool from whom to draw convening authorities, boy, that would be like the first group you'd go to. I would disagree for two fundamental reasons. First of all, convening authority is primarily a prosecutorial duty. There are judicial components, judicial acts to it, which are protected by statute. But it's primarily a prosecutorial function. And so to say it's the primary pool would be like saying, you know, the most obvious person to appoint as the acting attorney general would be a member of this court. I think that would be sort of just profoundly surprising to people in thinking about what Congress understood the duties of this court to be and also what Congress understood the duties of the attorney general to be. But if I could point to a few other things, because I do think, you know, the government makes a lot of this senior judge title. And I think if you read the statute. Be careful. 
I, I, be careful. Well, I, 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 we love I, senior judges. Well, I think the government needs to be careful because, because okay. if you actually, look, for example, look at uh, 28 U.S.C. 371, the, the, which I'm sure Judge Edwards is far more familiar with than I am in its details. Um, but there are a couple distinctions that are made in there that I think are really quite important. For one thing, uh, a judge on the Court of Appeals, uh, a senior judge on the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, has no continuing obligations, responsibilities. They don't have to comply with the Judicial Code of Conduct. They continue, they can take cases. They're completely exempt from any conflict of interest or federal statutes governing work for the government. Um, a senior judge on this court has a continuing docket, has to be certified annually by the chief judges performing uh, judicial functions. Uh, none of those continuing functions exist with a senior judge on the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Um, a senior judge on, and, and second, I, I, a senior judge on this court actually receives a salary. And I think that's actually important here in a specific way. Because if you look through, for example, at 371, you can either continue to be a senior judge on this court and accept a salary, and you continue to be essentially an office holder, or you can actually retire like Judge Brown did or Judge Kaczynski did out on the Ninth Circuit and get um, a retirement annuity. And the statute's very clear about that distinction. And like, more like Judge, um, uh, Judge Kaczynski on the Ninth Circuit, who's now taking cases as an attorney in his old court, um, he, Judge Crawford, gets an annuity. And that's what the statute said, she gets an annuity. And in fact, if you look at, uh, I think it's page 26 or 27 of our uh, initial appendix, and you actually look at her hiring action, uh, her annuity is actually protected. It's not a statute on the books anymore, but, but she actually is allowed to continue to receive her annuity as a retired judge on the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, and then gets the SES salary on top of that. She is, in essence, a practicing lawyer for the government. Um, while she ostensibly holds this senior judge title. And so, and, and I would point to one final factor. If, if, sorry, Aaron. Oh. I, I would just point to one final factor, which I really do think distinguishes a senior judge on the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces um, from a senior judge on this court, or even some of the, you know, like a, a, a magistrate court or something like that, is that she can't leave that office. Um, she just, it, by virtue of being retired, by getting that annuity, she's just called a senior judge under the statute. And if you can't be impeached, if you can't be removed, if you can't resign uh, from an office, then I, I strongly believe, I, I tend to believe that's actually not an office. It's, it's just a title, particularly when it has no pay associated with it, it has no duties associated with it. Well, let's, let's, talk, let's focus on the, the convening authority itself, mm -hmm. right? So, um, so if the convening authority is an officer, I want, I'd, I'd be interested to hear more about your thoughts about why you think it would be a principal officer as opposed to an inferior officer. So I think the most straightforward reason that a convening authority is a principal officer is that there are a number of actions that the convening authority takes that are done, again, this is the statutory language, in her sole discretion, a sole prerogative, actually, and discretion. And that's statutorily protected. Uh, Section 949, I believe it's A, 949B a, sub A, um, actually prevents any sort of interference with her exercise of judicial uh, discretion in any of her particular judicial acts. And I'll give you one example, which I think um, is pretty significant. She has clemency powers. So after a military commission um, has undergone, has, has concluded and rendered its sentence and judgment, she can just decide, I reject that. And that double jeopardy has attached, um, I reject the sentence. And there's no review of that anywhere. Anywhere in the executive branch, anywhere in the judicial branch. She, she's a final decision-making authority on, and here, that judgment was exercised to confirm you know, a sentence of life without parole. So it's a very serious exercise of unfettered, unreviewable discretion. Um, and so I think that certainly puts her on the principal officer side of the line. If you look at cases like... Um, Can you identify sorry. other officials like the convening authority who have been classified as principal officers? Um, well, I, I, the, um, the judges, or, or I guess administrative law judges on the uh, Copyright Appeals Board, um, they were able to make final judgments about copyright um, issues, and those judgments uh, there were at least appealable to this court. And that was enough for this court to say, that makes them a principal officer, and there's the remedy there, we can remove their tenure protections. Um, here that can't actually be done. There's no tenure protection to remove here, in part because it's not an office, but um, it's, it's uh, also sort of just the, the way the statute is structured. You just couldn't take away uh, those powers. And even if you could, they've already been exercised in this case. And so if, if, if you could prospectively, it would still be fatal to the jurisdiction in this case. Um, I think the Federal Circuit's decision in Arthrex um, from a few months ago 
largely the same analysis. To the extent anyone is making a final judgment or a final action in a case, that makes them a principal officer if that final action is not reviewable directly by a superior executive branch official. And there are a number of actions like that that she exercised. Are D.C. Circuit judges principal officers? I think so. I think you would be. And I would also say I think most certainly senior level. Well, we're not in the executive branch. We're not in the executive branch, but that's a fair point. But you are the courts of law, and so you're equated to department heads under the Appointments Clause. I would also add, though, and this may, I think, also assuage any concerns you have about the interpretation of the statute, military officers above the rank of major are all nominated by the President and confirmed by the Senate. I don't know that there's a holding one way or another on whether or not that satisfies the principal officer condition. However, convening authority under 10 U.S.C. 822, which is the general court-martial convening authority, and also by tradition, has normally been exercised by the most senior officers in the military. We're talking general officers, and only the rarest of occasions would it even go down to the rank of colonel or lieutenant colonel. And all of those would meet the conditions of being a principal officer. And so if you simply interpret the statute the way sort of history would dictate such a statute would be interpreted, if you would simply interpret the statute to sort of just say, look, if you want to, actually as it's been implied, so for example, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, also a principal officer, the General Counsel of the Navy, also a principal officer, the general officers who have been variously designated as convening authority, also principal officers, at least under the Appointments Clause framework. So we're not asking for a test that's actually hard to apply. We're actually asking for the test that has been routinely applied. We're simply saying that in our case, in the case of Susan Crawford, and then the General Counsel of an agency, a principal officer. Well, he's nominated by the President and confirmed by the Senate. That's the test for principal officers? Well, it's certainly the condition. It's the constitutional precondition for someone to act as a principal officer. They must be appointed. That's also the default mode of appointment for inferior officers, but to the extent. There are lots of inferior officers who are PAS. Absolutely. And they may be inferior officers, but could they be, for example, eligible to be delegated what are, in essence, principal officer authorities? Because that's ultimately what we say Section 948H does. It's a delegation statute. It's actually very similar in some ways to the statute at issue in Lucia, which was 17 U.S.C. 78D-1 or something complicated like that, which was a broad delegation statute given to the Securities and Exchange Commission, and they used that statute to essentially delegate power to SEC employees. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. You have to appoint them first. Now, the SEC had an appointment authority that it could use to remedy that, at least prospectively. The Secretary of Defense does not have a similar appointment authority. But it's a fairly easy, frankly, it's a fairly easy test to meet, and it has been met most of the time. So are you suggesting that principal officers can appoint other principal officers? Well, certainly, no. Certainly department heads. The Securities and Exchange Commission was treated as essentially a department head, as I understand it, in Lucia, so that it was given the lawful appointment authority, not unlike the Public Accounting Oversight Board issues that were up in Free Enterprise Fund, where you have essentially a principal officer committee, or sorry, department head committee. But to the extent, but if this is, I just want to sort of return, if this is where, you know, confusion lies, we think, again, our interpretation of the statute, which avoids potentially difficult problems on this principal inferior officer distinction, is the best one. And in this case, she simply just was not any kind of officer. And even if you think that the senior judge status gave her some kind of residual officer remit, that's just a much, this is just not a germane duty to the responsibilities that Congress. May I ask you about your ex post facto argument? Sure. So as I understand it, you have a law of the case problem here. We've been down this road several times before. And as I understand your argument, you claim that class presents an intervening change in law that requires us to look at this differently. But your argument about class has already been rejected by who? The First Circuit and the Sixth Circuit? That's been a losing argument twice. Why should we go against them? And when I read class, class is about guilty pleas. It doesn't stand for the broader proposition. I mean, you're arguing that class worked a fundamental 
change uh, in the law of uh, forfeiture constitutional challenges. Now, I, I just, my reaction is that you're, you're asking class to do way too much work. Um, I see I'm getting close to the no, end no, of no, my, no, 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 thank yeah, you. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so, so I, first, we actually don't think you have to disagree with the Sixth or First Circuit, because the, ultimately, the Sixth Circuit actually doesn't analyze this question. Um, we, I looked into it, and they didn't even have rebriefing after class, let alone re-argument. So the Sixth Circuit, I think, was just operating on, you know, a sort of a default presumption that the plain error review applied. Uh, as it did before. Uh, the First Circuit does grapple with this somewhat, but the only issue actually before the force, First Circuit was whether um, class cr made what are essentially black ledge meta claims uh, mm -hmm. jurisdictional, because that's ultimately what class holds. Um, if, you, if you remember many moons ago when this case was back uh, on the on bank court, this court relied on its line of authority, uh, you know, Delgado Garcia was the primary case this court mm -hmm. relied upon to say that a challenge to the constitutionality of a statute was not a black legitimate claim. It was not a challenge to the government's power to hail you into court. And as a consequence, um, was neither jurisdictional or in, and had no special status. It was like any other constitutional objection that might get raised at trial. Um, uh, and in class, this court did the same exact thing. It actually cites the same exact page of Delgado Garcia to say that this is a straightforward holding. It's a pure curiam opinion, in fact. And the Supreme Court says, no, class, well, I, we call it class claims, but challenges to the constitutionality of the statute are essentially uh, black legitimate claims. They are challenges to the government's power to prosecute you at all. Now, in the federal courts, that, that probably isn't a jurisdictional defect. I think there may be arguments that it is, but First Circuit says it's not. And that's primarily because the federal courts are freestanding institutions that have general jurisdiction. And so the constitutionality of a statute underlying an indictment doesn't ultimately undermine the power of the courts to adjudicate a case. In the military context, the power to prosecute and the power to adjudicate are actually one and the same. Um, and that gets to the convening authority issue we talked about before, that the reason why a convening authority is ineligibility to, to serve as a convening authority is jurisdictional defect is because the, the court and the charges are all convened and created together. Um, and so in the military context, and we, we, we listed a number of examples of situations where jurisdictional defects are not um, relevant. Things are not jurisdictional in the federal courts, but are jurisdictional in the military courts. Um, and, and so we would simply say that, that that's true with class claims, too. And, and lower military courts prior to class have actually held that. The Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces just has never reached the issue, although the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces has reached similar types of issues, like the Assimilative Crimes Act, uh, which is not even remotely jurisdictional in the federal court system, uh, but is actually profoundly jurisdictional, subject matter jurisdiction in the military system. Um, if I can make one other point, though, just on that, um, to distinguish, I think, the First Circuit's reading from ours. Um, even if you accept that, because the First Circuit was only concerned about it being jurisdictional or not. That was the bucket it was looking at. Um, and we think class certainly opens the door to understanding constitutional challenges to a statute, right, where you're not gainsaying the facts at trial. You're not gainsaying anything in the, in, in the indictment. But the constitutionality of the statute itself um, is a fundamental defect that implicates sort of core concerns of judicial administration. So in that way, it's a lot like Nguyen or, um, or uh, Glidden versus Zednuk. Um, where the, you know, you have a fundamental defect and there's a, you know, important administrative interest. And if I could highlight what that important administrative interest is, is um, if you accept, as the Supreme Court held, that challenges to the constitutionality of a statute are, in fact, black legitimate claims. Well, what does that actually mean? What is black legitimate? Well, it means you can raise them in a post-trial habeas case without having to show cause and prejudice. Uh, where you're not subject to the plain error review. It's going to be de novo review in a post-trial habeas case. And, um, but you can't do that on direct appeal. And I think kind of a, such a, where if it's, if it's still subject to plain error on direct appeal, but you can get de novo review on a post-trial habeas case, I just think that kind of rope-a-dope scheme is a, is a, is a problem of judicial administration uh, significant enough, and particularly given how rare actual class claims are that it's significant enough to just not embrace plain error review when you're creating this kind of rope-a-dope appellate system that's going to you know, protract criminal cases for years for, for really no profit, when the only question before the court is, again, nothing to do with the facts of the case, nothing to do with the indictment, just the, you know, the, the basic question, is the statute constitutional? So, so that would be certainly how we would distinguish the First Circuit from, from what we're arguing here. Um, and we also just think it's the right answer. Um, so that if Let me ask you another question, but this is about your alleged solitary confinement uh, claim. Do, do we have a sufficient factual record 
on which to um, so that, or is that, or are you asking us to kick that back to create a, a record on that? Um, so we've certainly proffered facts that the government has not, um, ha has not contested in any significant way. Um, I think just given the presumption of regularity that this court normally applies, the, the military regulation governing uh, the segregation of detainees says what it says, and we're simply saying it's being applied. And this court can take judicial notice of the fact that Mr. Abdul is the only uh, convicted, Guan lo convicted low-value Guantanamo detainee. There's, there are two detainee populations, a high-value, which is segregated entirely, and a low-value, which is where he's always been. Um, and as a consequence of that, he is the proverbial class of one. And as a consequence of that, he has been in solitary confinement for the better part of seven and a half cumulative years. And, um, and we, we think that's significant, um, and we think this court can address that. Okay. But if there are inadequate facts, it's certainly something the court can okay. remit. Okay. We'll if I may some time back on Thank, Thank you very, very much. much. the court. The 2006 MCA authorizes the Secretary of Defense to designate any officer or official of the United States to convene military commissions. That's broad language on its face. And I take the principal issue here to be whether it's necessary for this court to adopt a very narrowing countertextual reading of the phrase officer or official of the United States in order to resolve any appointments clause issues that might arise. We think that the, there's a much simpler way to avoid any appointments clause problem. And that is to interpret the secretary's designation of the convening authority as itself an appointment that satisfies the requirements of the appointments clause for inferior officers like the convening authority. If the statute had used the so word- do you read their argument, or do you hear their argument to be that the convening, the appointed convening officer must be a principal officer? Yes, they have argued and made a kind of independent argument that the convening authority must be. I mean, is that your be, understanding of their argument, that the appointed person must be a principal officer? I was listening and didn't ask. I'll ask them rebuttal. Go ahead. Yes, I think they have advanced, the, they, they have advanced two separate arguments, I think, and the, the principal officer argument is they have contended both that the convening authority is an inferior officer who must be appointed consistent with the appointments clause. And, that, and as an inferior officer, that, the inferior officer claim would be satisfied, in our view, by the secretary's designation, because the secretary is a head of department. And Congress, by authorizing him to designate the convening authority, has granted him power to appoint an inferior officer. Separately from that, they've also argued that the convening authority is a principal officer position that would require a presidential appointment right. and confirmation by the Senate. The secretary couldn't do it. Correct. Under that theory. Under that theory. Right. And our response to that theory is the Supreme Court's decision in Edmund, which held that judges on the military courts of appeals are inferior and not principal officers. And the reasoning, that, that, the reasoning that the Supreme Court applied to those judges applies equally to the convening authority. Coming back to the inferior officer point. Yes, so can you draw out the analogies? Why do you think this is an inferior officer under Edmund? What are the features that make it the same? The features that make it the same are, the, the most important one is the removability. The Supreme Court in Edmund. Oh, the what, say that again? The removability oh, of the judges. Those judges were removable without cause by the Judge Advocate General, and the Supreme Court relied heavily on that fact. The same is true of the convening authority, who is removable without cause by the Secretary of Defense. The petitioner has relied on provisions that limit the Secretary's ability to influence the convening authority by a threat of removal with respect to his judicial acts in a particular case. Those same provisions apply to the judges that were at issue in Edmund, as the Supreme Court explicitly acknowledged. But the Supreme Court said that those provisions didn't make the judges principal officers, 
And the same is true for the convenient word. Yeah, can you maybe um, discuss a little bit more how those two things are related, the unlawful influence restrictions and removability? Because they can be removed, but they also can't be influenced. So how does that affect the type of control that they have over, over the convenient word? The Secretary's ability to remove without cause remains a powerful tool for control, even though he is there are limits that provide a right for the defense if he were to remove the convening authority for or attempt to influence the convening authority with a threat of removal with respect to his judicial acts. We don't see those provisions as a protection for the convening authority, but rather as a, a right for the defense in a particular case. In other words, I don't think those provisions would, if the secretary were to remove the convening authority, he would be removed. And that may give rise to a claim on the part of defense that this, has, that, that, that this violated his right to a fair trial under those provisions, but it doesn't protect the convening authority from removal. So you're saying the unlawful influence are not similar to, say, for-cause removal protections no, for Honor, the convening the, authority? The Supreme Court rejected that argument in Edmund. The Supreme Court noted these provisions mm -hmm. and still held that the judges were inferior So you officers. think they're protections for the defendant? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, and that the, the Supreme Court in Edmund characterized, noted that those judges were removable without cause and also discussed the same uh, unlawful influence provisions. That if you're right that it gives right to a defendant, uh, if, if there was an unlawful removal, uh, where, where does the defendant vindicate that right? Before us? Well, if it happened at the trial level in the, in the military commission, and the military commission has adjudicated claims of unlawful command influence um, in other cases. I don't think there's been a claim in this case, but in other cases yeah. okay. before. And the secretary has, in fact, exercised his removal authority over the convening authority for military commissions relatively recently, as the petitioner notes. Our primary submission on the inferior officer claim, again, is that the secretary's designation satisfies the purposes of the Appointments Clause. The Appointments Clause is designed to ensure political accountability for appointments. That's satisfied here. The Secretary of Defense is the responsible official for designating the convening authority. He's on the hook for that appointment. And if the statute had used the word appoint rather than designate, there's no statutory or constitutional significance or difference it would obtain. We would still have the same structure that we do here. And so we think that the, that the cleanest way to avoid any constitutional problem is to say that the designation is an appointment that satisfies the Appointments Clause. And that would mean that the statutory phrase, any officer or official, can be given its ordinary meaning. Now, the petitioner's interpretation introduces a host of constitutional problems. Let me explain some of those. So under the petitioner's reading, the constitutional responsible appointing official is not the Secretary of Defense necessarily, but it's which the, the official who first appointed the officer to his original position. And under the statute, that officer doesn't have to be the Secretary of Defense. The, the statute would allow the Secretary of Defense to designate an officer from some other department. And any officer or official of the United States could be an officer within the State Department or an officer with, at Justice or an officer in the Department of Agriculture. And if the Secretary designated that person, then a Secretary from another department would become the constitutional, constitutionally responsible officer for the appointment. And that would actually diffuse the responsibility for the appointment. Excuse and it would me, also excuse me, this, this gets a little metaphysical for, for me. So, so let, me, let, me, let me ask it in, 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 in this way. Uh, if, if one looks at the responsibilities of a convening authority, they seem like they're significant adjudicatory responsibilities. So just play, bear with me on that. If, if, if we I, agree if, with that, Your Honor. Okay. And, and so they therefore fall within the Appointments Clause. Okay. Yes. They fall within the Appointments Clause. Um, at, at, at that point, isn't the simplest way for us to approach this the, 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 uh, the approach that your friends have, have argued, and that is, if this is, in fact, someone who falls within the Appointments Clause, shouldn't we read the statute 
in a way, to say uh, the secretary may not appoint a mere employee but has to appoint a constitutional officer. Is that what he's done here? What, what's wrong with that thinking? Because that would raise a germaneness problem as applied to any officer or official whose appointment, whose prior appointment is raises a question whether it's germane to service as the convening authority. So if the secretary were to designate someone from the State Department, then, uh, then th that officer, we, there would be a question, well, does that appointment, is it germane so that that would be constitutional? Don't, don't to we be the avoid the, do we avoid the germaneness, germaneness problem with your alternative and yes, late, late broad argument that, that in fact what we have with uh, Senior Judge Crawford is someone who meets the germaneness requirement? Yes, I, we agree that, that, that the appointment to the CAF it would be sufficiently germane to service as the convening authority. Why? Because the CAF is a, it is a, a body that is involved with very similar uh, adjudication of military law questions. As okay, the then that raises my next question, and that is why did you bring that so late, and what are we supposed to do with an argument that's brought so late? This is, this is something that that is a long time. Yeah, but I can make the same argument to that the council for a little Why so late, all of this? I mean, we, we, we have a, a set of doctrines that tell us what to do with late-brought claims, and particularly when it's a claim um, seeking to invoke our jurisdiction, right? Haven't you forfeited that? Uh, I, I think both parties are in the uh, having made arguments late category, Your Honor. But I think that as the prevailing party below, we're entitled to defend the CMCR's judgment on alternative grounds. And that's all we're asking the court to do. And ultimately on this jurisdictional question, it's just a question of... So is, is there a forfeiture problem that we, with your argument that we need to work around? Or is there a law that applies to this? How should we... If, if, if I'm of the view that you have forfeited that this argument that, that, that Judge Crawford, that Senior Judge Crawford uh, fits the bill here. Um, w help me think that through. What do I do with that? Well, setting aside our primary submission right, exactly. is, is yeah, the Secretary's right. designation. Right. But our principal submission is that, again, as the prevailing party, we can defend the judgment on any ground that's proper. And, and, and since this is a jurisdictional claim that's brought very late into the process, I think it's appropriate for the court to just try to get the question but, but, I mean, right. The, the law, as I understand, and help me here, uh, as I understand the law of forfeiture on jurisdictional claims, it works a little different for you than it does for Baloo. If someone's claiming that there isn't jurisdiction, you can bring that up anytime you want. If you're claiming there is jurisdiction, don't, aren't you too late on that? I don't agree, Your Honor. I don't think we have an affirmative responsibility to anticipate a constitutional challenge to a duly enacted statute and a duly appointed officer and respond to it in advance. And so in this circumstance where that claim is brought so late in the process, then I, I think we're entitled, again, to defend the judgment below on that basis. And that the court ought to just treat the question as, as the jurisdictional question as, because it's jurisdictional, and we've agreed that it's jurisdictional, that, it, mm -hmm. that, it, that in the military context, the because the court is a creature of the convening authority, then the validity of the appointment of the convening authority can matter even at this late stage. But because of that, it's that kind of question, then the court should simply just, either she was eligible as an officer or official of the United States or she wasn't. Mm -hmm. And the court can consider alternative arguments to support the CMCR's determination that she was. What do you think is your stronger argument? We think that the, that the Secretary defenses designation counting as an appointment that satisfies all the purposes of the appointments clause is, is our strongest and most straightforward argument. And that the narrowest ground would be to say that she was a constitutional officer, right? If we I took your alternative argument, that's a narrower ground for us. It's I think that's right. It would be a case-specific holding. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we think that the Secretary's designation um, of Senior Judge Crawford was in effect ratified by Congress 
in 2009. I mean, if the convening authority is an inferior officer, then she wouldn't need to have been an officer in advance in order to be properly appointed by the secretary. That's exactly our primary argument, Your Honor. That's what I'm trying to say is that she could have – constitutionally, she could have been anyone at the time she was designated if the designation counts as an appointment, which is what we argue. And deciding on those grounds wouldn't avoid a constitutional question. It would avoid a statutory question, right, about whether officer or official can include employees. I mean, it would require us to decide that question, but it wouldn't require us to decide an additional constitutional question. I think that's right. It would make the phrase – it would make it open. There would be no constitutional problem with giving the phrase officer or official of the United States its plain meaning to include officials who are not constitutional officers. There would be no appointments clause problem because the appointments clause is satisfied by the secretary's appointment of the convening authority. Right. Making that – right. Making that statutory argument doesn't allow us to avoid any additional constitutional questions. I think that's right. The defense – the petitioner's interpretation makes the statute potentially unconstitutional in a broad range of applications for – even for constitutional officers because those – the prior appointment that those constitutional officers have would have to be germane to service as the convening authority. That's not a problem under our reading because the secretary of defense has specifically appointed the convening authority to do that job. Can I just ask you, would you – could you rely on the de facto officer doctrine here? We haven't invoked that claim, Your Honor, and I think the Supreme Court had difficulty with that argument in the Edmund category of litigation over the military judges, and so we haven't invoked it. Again, because we've already said this court could consider any argument to affirm the CMCR's decision, that may be available, but we haven't – we haven't made that argument to this point. Your Honor, if I could just make one quick point. Coming back to the principal officer point and referring to this court's decision related to the copyright judges and the decision by the Federal Circuit applying that decision to certain patent judges, both this court and the Federal Circuit decided that any problem could be remedied by invalidating the statutory restrictions on removal. And Petitioner has said that in the convening authority context there are no such restrictions on removal. And so those cases help our argument that the convening authority is an inferior and not a principal officer. Your Honor, if I could just very quickly speak to the ex post facto issue. The Petitioner, to the extent that he has said that it's a question of military law that determines whether his claim is jurisdictional or not, that just makes it so that class is even less helpful to his claim because class didn't purport to be a discussion of military law. And our principal submission is that class is about guilty pleas. And because there wasn't a guilty plea here, it says it doesn't in any way affect this court's en banc determination that constitutional claims could be forfeited in the military commission system. Are you going to get to the reassessment of the sentence issue? Because where in there do you find evidence that during the reassessment that the beyond a reasonable doubt standard was used? I don't see it anywhere. It's not cited. That's an error, isn't it? Wrong standard was used. It is cited, Your Honor. The case in which that, the sales case from the cap in which that standard is explained is cited by the CMCR. Now we, it's true that the CMCR did not use the word reasonable doubt. But we think it's. You don't think that's kind of important when you're trying, when we're trying to understand what standard was used if they don't use the language of the standard? I think when they cite the proper case and when the court's analysis indicates that it was, that there wasn't, doesn't indicate any doubt about the question, the court determined that the 
conduct that underlying the vacated charges was the precise same conduct that underlie the conspiracy count. And that makes it so that the reassessing the sentence was proper under any standard. And in that circumstance, there's no reason to think that it would be a worthwhile exercise to send it back to them to say the words that they didn't say the first time. When they cited the case that contained the proper standard and when they resolved the question, not suggesting that there was any doubt about it. If there's no further questions, I'm done. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, this is time for rebuttal. I will stick to rebuttal, I promise. First, because it's an issue, obviously, we're quite familiar with this on forfeiture and waiver. This is actually not even just a forfeited issue on their part. We specifically flagged concerns. We anticipated that this argument might be made below in our briefing. We filed a supplemental brief. And they specifically did not raise, and they said they specifically did not. But it's all been briefed now, right? I mean, one of the concerns with forfeiture is sandbagging. That's not the case here, right? Well, it's a bit of sandbagging because we came up to this court. We had to basically jam all of our responses to this argument in a reply brief that we had less than we had our initial brief to file. And, again, this case has had, obviously, plenty of opportunities to look at forfeiture with very thoroughly briefed issues. And, you know, if you'll pardon the colloquialism, sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And if this court is going to apply very strict forfeiture rules against Mr. Abdul, who is essentially a pro se litigant in this case, I think the government should at least get basic stuff right and raise the issues that it actually wants courts to decide. And I think to the extent they have argued, they didn't argue it at the podium, but they did argue it in their briefing, that the CMCR is given some sort of specially privileged position because of its experience in military legal issues. This argument, I think, would have had a much different color in front of the CCAs, where there's a lot more familiarity with the courts of appeals for the armed forces and the statutes governing those. And, candidly, I think they didn't raise it below because it's just not a good argument. And one of the reasons, I think, is something... You say we've been tough on forfeiture with Ballul. He didn't participate in the proceeding at all. How's that being tough on him to say that plain error review applies? He participated somewhat. I'm not going to defend Mr. Abdul's conduct in trial. That's not what I meant to say. But I'm simply saying, you know, sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. But how is it even comparable here? Well, in Mr. Abdul's... A total non-participation yields a certain result. And we don't have total non-participation here. Mr. Abdul did make objections. This court just found that those objections were not precisely articulated enough to flag the issue for reviewability purposes. We squarely raised the issue below, and they refused to respond to it. In fact, they said it's an irrelevant argument entirely. So I do think, just again, with a pro se litigant and experienced government counsel, I think that's a big difference. But I would actually make one point that I think my friend raised, which I think really does cut against this whole Susan Crawford is a principal officer on CAF. CAF is not actually part of the Department of Defense. There's actually a specific statute saying for convenience, the statutes governing it are put in Title X. But like the tax court, like a lot of other independent agencies or Article I tribunals, it's a freestanding entity in the executive branch. And so his germaneness argument that, oh, well, we're going to be pulling people from the Department of Agriculture, if you agree with my argument, that's arguably what they would have had to have done here in order to put Susan Crawford onto the court. If I can address their sort of core appointments clause argument, at least as they frame it, is we should read designate as a point. Don't read the statute as it's written. Read it as we would like it to be written. And can I just give this court four examples, with this court's indulgence, give this court four examples of where identical language, often done with identical grammar, has not been interpreted that way. First was with the International Security and Development Cooperation Act. The Office of Legal Counsel squarely looked at a statute that gave the president certain powers and the power to designate that to any office or agency and said the president does not have the power because of the appointments clause with a statute that simply gives the power to designate, the power to actually create an office and to appoint individuals into an office. Edmund versus the United States, Article 66 of the UCMJ, uses both the word assign and also designate for senior chief judge of the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. The Supreme Court said we can't rely on that as an appointment statute. Instead, they had to look at 49 U.S.C. 323, which is the enabling act for the Secretary of Transportation, as an appointment authority, a separate appointment authority. 
The United States versus Nagoyan, um, that's 28 U.S.C. 292, which is the sitting by designation statute. That language is virtually identical grammatically in terms of uh, to, to Section 948H. And no one suggested in Nagoyan that the power of the chief judge of a circuit to designate a district judge constituted or should be read to constitute an appointment. And if they did, that would have resolved the case very simply and concisely. Uh, instead, the Supreme Court said, no, statutory terms mean what they mean. Designate means an existing officer or official in that case. Um, and then... Go ahead. I'm sorry. And then, and then lastly, actually, Lucia itself. Um, you know, Lucia is a broad... It depends on a fairly broad delegation provision of the Securities and Exchange Act. But how that's operationalized in 15 CFR 2001-110 is to designate hearing officers. And the Securities and Exchange Commission designated hearing officers in the same way the Secretary of Defense designated a convening authority. And no one at the time here and no one at the time in Lucia thought anyone was getting an appointment to anything. Um, if I can resist my, my friend's argument, or, and, I, and I think he's frankly just wrong on this, that if you accept their argument that this is a creation of an office, that designate means to create an office, well, that's a, ju a judicial office. That's by statute. And under, <clears throat> and under United States versus Wiener, that means because a judicial office uh, in, the Article one, in, in the Article I context, that it's automatically given good cause tenure. And so the Secretary of Defense does not have the automatic ability to remove a convening authority at will. Um, and, and hasn't exercised that authority. Again, I, I, a lot of what the government has argued on a number of these issues, uh, frankly, is to say, well, just impute a little bit here, shade the language here, um, you know, give us a little bit of an edge or a sort of ambiguity in our favor here. And, you know, we're dealing with a case where this man is serving life without parole in solitary confinement. And if that's what this court is being asked to approve, I don't think it's a lot to ask that the government just get the very basic things right. And reversing on the Appointments Clause ground, which we think is the most straightforward, does not set him free. It literally moves him from Camp 5 to Camp 6 with the other low-value detainees. And if the government wants to prosecute him and prosecute him properly in a military commission, they can do so. Let me go at it. One, one more thought to make sure I understand the reach of your argument, looking at the statutory language. Um, the Secretary has authority to appoint inferior officers, right? No, the Secretary of Defense does not. That's been a very jealously uh, withheld authority. Congress has never, uh, maybe with the exception of a brief period in the 1960s, never given the Secretary of Defense any general appointment power. There are only 16 provisions in all of Title X, and we're happy to provide those to the court in the 28J letter. We, we, we looked. Um, and there are only 16 provisions in Title X where the Secretary has given any appointment authority at all. Uh, nine of them are to various advisory boards, and the, the seven others um, are to things that are just not germane to, to this case. Um, and so, if, I, I, your honor, to your Honor's question, I would actually point this Court specifically to the Court of Appeals uh, for the Armed Forces decision in Janssen. Um, we cite it in our brief and in our reply brief. Um, they look at this Appointments Clause issue in the Title X context, very, very carefully. And I candidly think that's one of the reasons why they were not quick to try and pull out this, you know, senior judges or perpetual officers argument below. Because that's something that in the military context people are very, very familiar with. And um, they lay out, the, again, the structure of Title X, how carefully it's reticulated, um, even the number of majors. Well, well the fact that the, the secretary doesn't have a general appointment authority, I mean, that seems to be correct under the statute. But the real question here is whether the MCA gives him that authority to appoint someone in this context, right? Uh, absolutely. That is Obviously, you disagree about that, but yeah, that's, that's the question here. That's correct. And we would point to the OLC's opinion on the International Development and Security Assistance Security Cooperation Act uh, to Edmund. I think Edmund is probably our best case. Um, this court's decision last year in Inray Sealed case as well um, was, you know, I mean, you've got to have a statute that says a point. This, this is not being formalistic or abstract. The Supreme Court has said in this context words matter because the delegation of appointment authority from Congress to, the, to a department head, you know, is a significant separation of powers problem. Congress is withholding its power to review the executive appointments. That's a, that's a significant problem, or at least a significant concern when it comes to the accountability of executive officials who are exercising significant powers on behalf of the government, as the convening authority did here. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Case is submitted.